Hello, Cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. They say never meet your heroes, but they never said anything about heroines. In my talk with Eve Golden, I found her to be every bit as witty, informed, and fun as I imagined her to be since I first started reading her movie line column, The Bottom Shelf, in the 90s. Since then, she has written two collections of film essays and seven film and theater biographies with an eighth on the way. We talked about her latest book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, her next biography, Squealing, Bullet Bras, and all sorts of other important things. Thank you for joining me today, Eve. Oh, thank you for having me. In looking back on, on the books you've written, I've noticed a pattern and I wondered if it was deliberate. Jean Harlow, Theta Barra, Anna Held, Jane Mansfield, even John Gilbert, you could call them misunderstood bombshells and also people whose lives, there's a lot of tall tales told. I mean, are, are you deliberate in choosing that sort of subject? Well, I do like getting hold of people either who haven't really been covered before or have had a lot of nonsense written about them so I can set that straight. If somebody's had a really good book written about them already, there's no need for me to just go back and repeat it. I mean, there's been great books about Marlene Dietrich and John Barrymore. So as much as I love them, I would have nothing further to say about them. Mm -hmm. I, I do remember early on, reading an interview in which you became so frustrated with, it was a fabricated conversation or something that wasn't true and that you'd thrown the book across the room. And, <laughs> I do um, that a lot. Huh? I yeah. do that a lot. <laughs> yeah, when you get the e-reader, it kind of puts a cramp in that, but yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it is something that I've admired about your work, especially when I, I, I have been read stuff and just known for a fact without looking it up that something's incorrect. And, and that's something you always get right. And this biography, Jane Mansfield, it seems like a particular challenge because she is responsible for some of the fabrication herself. How did you approach this? How did you, how did you get your story right? Well, I had to say when I believed a story and when I didn't. When you're working with, you know what gossip columnists to trust after a while. I mean, James Bacon and Dorothy Kilgallen were very untrustworthy. They would just make things up. Uh, Luella Parsons, surprisingly enough, for all of her bad reputation, was a pretty good reporter. Uh, so if I find a story, I will tell the reader this may or may not be true and tell them why I think so, because the reader has to trust you. As soon as the reader loses their trust in you, that's it. So for instance, in the John Gilbert book, there was that wonderful story about the quote on their honeymoon that when he married Ina Clara, they were both huge stars. And the reporters said, tell me, Miss Clara, what's it like being married to a great big famous star? And she said, I don't know. Why don't you ask my husband? And that's just such a wonderful story. It probably never happened, but I had to tell it anyway and tell the readers, okay, this is probably apocryphal, but I have to share this anyway. Because sometimes the story is, you know, worth it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm writing a book about Lupi Velez right now. And the one thing that everybody knows about her is that she drowned in her toilet, which she did not drown in her toilet. I'm thinking of calling it Lupi Velez. No, she did not drown in her toilet. <laughs> 
and, and there's something about that too is you're picking these people who are often the subject of ridicule and while there's a lot of humor in your writing you never make fun I have to like the person I'm writing about. And also I keep in mind, especially with Jane Mansfield, that she has a family living. So when I was writing about her, I kept thinking, you know, her children may read this, her ex-husband may read this. So I, I'm not as mean as a good biographer maybe should be. I always tell the truth though. And I always mm -hmm. find out horrible, unflattering things about somebody. And I always think, oh, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Do I have to put this in the book? And yes, I have to put that in the book because that's my job. Mm -hmm. You can't pick and choose what facts you're going to put in the book. Yeah. And, and I mean, she did do some things that were ridiculous. Oh, if but, there was a boneheaded decision to be made, she made it. And yeah. that's so fascinating about Jane Mansfield is she was such a smart, thoughtful, eloquent person. And yet she did such boneheaded things. I never understood that part of it either. I, I really, I would reread a thing and think about it. And I just did not. You just want to go back and shake some sense into her. But yeah. people at the time tried to shake some sense into her and had no luck whatsoever because Whatever Janie wanted, Janie wanted. Well, there were people who told her no, and she just didn't listen. I so badly wanted her to go home into that beautiful pink palace and enjoy some rest, enjoy her children. And That was husband. not her. Mickey, yeah. one of the reasons they broke up was he wanted her to be a normal person, and she wanted to be Jane Mansfield. I mean, Marilyn Monroe hated being Marilyn Monroe, but Jane Mansfield loved being Jane Mansfield. I never saw anybody, and I agree, because I never saw anybody who so enjoyed closeness with her fans. It, when she goes to sit on the lap of somebody in a nightclub, it doesn't feel like she's selling herself or, or, or like there's anything skeevy about it. It feels delightful and warm. She wants to take them home for dinner and chat with them. I yeah. love that story where the two teenage girls stopped her in New York for an autograph and she took them up to her hotel room and gave them tea and cookies and chatted with them for an hour. It's such a genuine love and a tenderness and that episode of this is your life just the warmth she, there was a warmth she displayed in that she was crying when she saw people the way she touched people i she had the most genuine human connection that i've ever seen in a star she didn't have that protective layer i like to think of her as a human marshmallow peep oh she's she's bright and colorful and sugary and sweet and impossible to hate no matter how how she may make you sick at sometimes yeah oh it's it's perfect because it's delightful but then you cringe you know yeah. yes yes I only really knew with the exception of like maybe the burglar a few early roles I only really knew the bubble bubble and squeak Jane before mm -hmm. I read your book you know I hadn't switched that was, oh it's novel it's unique <laughs> and you do it you have I learned how to, I learned how to do that yeah it's down deep in the diaphragm, isn't it? Down here, you have to kind of, it's kind of almost like a, like a um, reverse hiccup almost. Ah. And then they're kind of the, like, oh, you know, I love that, that kind of warm little ripply, bubbly voice she does. That, that was one, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then you see YouTube interviews of her using her actual human being voice, and it's startling uh, how eloquent she was, what a wonderful a full vocabulary she had she was you know not an unintelligent person 
And you see her in some of her films, the British films, for instance, using her real voice, and you see whole different ways her career could have gone. She could have become a uh, Shelley Winters or Joanne Woodward, but she did not want that. So you think that she didn't want it. That's what I, I couldn't figure out because it seemed like a lot of times the studio let her down and didn't come through for her. But there are other times where she's going to so many supermarket openings and things like that. And it's like, well, okay. We well, she gotten... needed the money. I mean, she, she had a money. huge house to support. She had five children to support. She had the star lifestyle and there wasn't the kind of uh, pension or insurance or, or healthcare or anything like that that we sometimes have now. And she had to keep the money coming in constantly. But Fox really did let her down. I'm still mad that they didn't put her in the Susie Parker role in The Best of Everything. She would have been great in that part. And that's one of my favorite films. She had the goods for that. Though she did get some of her best squeaks in in that film. But I, I do love it when she gets to that lower register and too hot to handle. I loved that role because it was kind of this mothering part of her that I enjoy. It's part mm. of that tenderness. And she applies it to a drama that is unlike her personality so well. The way that she talks to the girls in that, the way that she, there's a scene in the end where she goes to pick up a rose and a little bit the of silence. noted that scene, yeah. This silent acting, it's, it shows what she could have done, even though it might've been perceived as kind of a cheap film, I, I guess. I found well, it- One of those actresses who- Given a good script and a good director, she was capable of turning in an excellent performance, but she needed a good script and good director. She didn't have the kind of talent that could rise above crap. And that's unfortunately a lot of what she got was crap. Because there's stuff like also the Wayward Bus where it just, she just settled oh, into it so and it was her. That. Yeah, it, was, it just felt like it was her in a lot of ways and, and she just rolled with it. Mm-hmm. Another one that I really liked that showed me kind of the intersection of Russ Meyer and John Waters was uh, Dog Eat Dog. That is an odd film, isn't it? It's very dark and violent and, and funny in some ways, but really creepy and dark. It was unpleasant to me, but I couldn't stop watching because she's so intense in it and just bedraggled in this kind of magnificent, it did make me think of Divine a little bit. And I can oh, well, see why John it, Waters loves her. Reminds me of the bizarro world Gilligan's Island. Yes, where, where, the, where the movie star just had a rougher ride, kind of. Exactly. There's seven stranded castaways on this island, except they all go crazy and start murdering each other. You know, it would be a great horror film if they'd just taken it up another notch there. They remade. That's one to remake, though. I don't know if I could stand it because it was intense enough as it was. Which one? Uh, Dog Eat Dog or Gilligan's yeah, Island? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but just all of that European work was such a different feeling. Well, of course, then there's Loves of Hercules. That's we're talking about European work, which is just one of her most enjoyably awful films. It's it's so bad, but all those wigs. <laughs> well, she insisted on playing all three female leads herself. There were supposed to be three different actresses in those roles. And she said, no, I don't think so. Just get me some wigs. The wig acting was supreme, so you can understand it. But yes, it's one of those things where I should have never cared about it or finished it. But it's just- Well, you can't not finish it. That dragon and all of a sudden, hey, here's Bigfoot for no apparent reason whatsoever. And let's throw a rock sort of in his general direction and he falls over dead. It's just so wonderfully awful. 
Well, just the big prosthetic thing and he's fighting it and it's just kind of flopping back at him. I really did think that Mickey Hargitay was a pretty good screen presence too. It just that You can't of... not love Mickey. He was yeah. he was such a nice guy. Uh, I just can't think of a bad word to say about Mickey Hargitay. He loved her so much too. I, I wonder if maybe that was what was keeping her afloat quite a lot of the time because in a way he seemed almost like a caretaker as much as she would allow him to be. Well, Matt Simber tried as well. Matt Simber is sometimes painted as a villain for taking Jane away from Mickey and, and being with her in those last bad years, but he actually tried to help her. He tried to get her back to her stage roots. He tried to stop her from drinking, but there was really no helping Jane who would not admit that she needed any help. He did seem to have a genuine interest in her career and, and not understand why she wouldn't listen so I do see that as much as I love her she had to be very frustrating to deal with at times you know I think the thing that's hard about it she wouldn't listen and you didn't know why I think about the closest I got to understanding her was the the comments from um Lonnie Anderson Mm -hmm. where she said that she got trapped in an image and got afraid well, she her felt- daughter, Jane Marie, also said that Jane knew what she was signing up for when she uh, started the um, blonde, you know, sex symbol, squeaky voice thing. And she got trapped in it, but it was her own fault because that's what she signed up for. And she dug into it so much that she couldn't get out. And as far as the pace she lived, like just so constant and fast, I could never determine if it was something she wanted if she because it's part of me felt like she had to be out there with these people admiring her. It didn't seem like it was only money to me. Well, that's why I felt a little silly using that Edith Wharton quote in the beginning, but that really exemplified Jane to me is what makes her so interesting is trying to figure out does she want this or does she look down on it? Is it silliness or what does she really, really think about her stardom? Because the intelligence is so clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it was interesting to me the way that there were these individual things that were so much a part of her legend that really were very small, like Anton LaVey. It was really just a little intellectual friend she had who loved his own publicity, you know, who came for a little visit or or like the incident with the dress and Sophia Loren. And the the falling off bikini at the press conference that never happened. Underwater. Yeah, yeah. All of those things seem to define her so much. But it wasn't the story at all. And that was something that I found very important about your book was that it put everything in perspective. And I think it was maybe the first time I'd seen that. Oh, thank you. Because part of it was just the, the like, oh, she was a Satanist. That's really what you see. She was so exactly. She was the least likely person to become a Satanist. She but wasn't it, even a very good Catholic, let alone a Satanist. Yeah. She's not going to commit to any of this, right? Right. I, and I have to note something in the book so that the people will maybe search this out. That the back to the Sophia Loren thing, which is this, the famous picture where she's giving her breasts that are ready to escape from her dress, the side eye. Um, there's a wonderful picture of Rita Moreno in the book. I, love that picture I worked so hard to find the best photographs and spend a fortune for photo rights and uh every photo I cut out and didn't use was just a knife to my heart but when I saw that newspaper photograph of Rita Moreno's eyes bugging out I said 
okay, this is not a picture of Jane Mansfield, but this has to go in the book. It told the story. And boy, <laughs> would it be great to talk to her about that moment. I'm sure she'd have a tale to tell. I tried to get hold of her and her people said that she did not remember that at all. I think possibly she was so shocked her. She, she had temporary amnesia. It was probably just another night for this young actress too. I imagine she went out. And there's actually in the newspaper, there's a series of four photographs of her jaw dropping and her eyes bugging out. And I just chose the best one out of those. <laughs> Would love to see the whole series. And also I love the photograph of Queen Elizabeth checking out her boobs too. Yeah, you just couldn't help it. Oh, Queen Elizabeth was totally checking out her boobs. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at her. And it's just stunning, this human being with the tiny waist, these enormous boots. I mean, you wonder what it was like to exist in a body like this. Well, there's that scene. I saw um, The Girl Can't Help It for the first time at a revival house with an audience. And there's a scene in it where she's wearing a one-piece jumpsuit and she whips her bathrobe off. And the audience gasped, almost like they were at a horror film, because you think... How can a human being be built like that and not break in half? It's just stunning. And you, and you know that this is natural. It's natural. Of course, a lot of it is corseting and padding. Uh, true. She, had, she had tiny little hips, so they would pad her hips out to give her more of an hourglass figure. They did the same with Anna Held. Um, everybody thinks of Anna Held as having this uh, uh, hourglass figure so extreme that there were rumors that she'd had ribs removed, but she was actually this tiny little slip of a thing who padded her bust and her hips. And in a lot of her photographs, her waistline is painted out. So a lot of it is, is fake. Just not surgically fake. Not surgically fake, but with Jane Mansfield, um, she had specially designed brassieres that were like the flying buttresses on medieval cathedrals. I guess that's the 50s when you think about it. I, I have some of my grandmother's bullet bras from the 50s. And they and point right at you. You could, you could really put somebody's eye out with those things. <laughs> I, I almost miss it in a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was um, the emphasis. The actresses on Mad Men were, were horrified by the undergarments they had to wear, but that was part of the deal back then, in the, in the, uh, especially in the 1950s. Yeah, construction was everything. Having seen all these Jane Mansfield films, what, what are your favorites? What would you just love people to see? Well, there's the good, good films and the good, bad films. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite good, bad film of hers is The Wild, Wild World of Jane Mansfield, which is that, that horrendous fake documentary that came out after she died and it's just 90 minutes of wonderful awfulness uh there's just so many quotable lines in it another good bad film let me see uh of course loves of hercules we've mentioned of her good good films of course the three early fox ones um rock hunter the girl can't help it and wayward bus uh as you mentioned she's very good in the burglar I think her worst film is Primitive Love. That is unwatchable. It's, I haven't seen that one. It is makes it you angry. It's so bad. Oh, oh no, dear Jane. That That is like, why did you do that? As bad as Promises, Promises is, it has a few moments and you can almost see why she did it. But Primitive Love, there is just no excuse for whatsoever. 
Okay, well maybe I won't. I won't. Maybe I won't try it, to put myself to. Oh that. my God! Well, you can you can look up. I'm sure the trailer or some scenes from it are on YouTube, and it's just painful. I mean, that's what I've seen, but yeah. Okay. Just everything about it, even the few scenes she's not in are painful because there's this awful, awful Italian comedy team. They were kind of the, I don't know if you can call them the, the Italian Martin and Lewis, but that's what they were aiming for. And they, they, as much as one might hate Martin and Lewis, they fell far, they, they made Martin and Lewis look like Burns and Allen. Oh dear. Well, that's good. You heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> it was on about page 70 of this book and I realized she was only 22 I mean she lived at such a fast pace and she'd done so much by the time she was 34 I couldn't picture where she'd go next I what do you think she would have done I don't know she's one of the few people who I I I can see John Gilbert becoming a great character actor Jean Harlow maybe going into television eventually but Jane Mansfield baffles me because she was such at a bad place when she died that I don't know whether she would have been able to pull out of that tailspin. Yeah. It's lovely to think of her just doing TV movies and talk shows and, and eventually I can definitely see her having her own talk show. She'd have been great at that, Mm -hmm. but she would have had to stop drinking, which was a problem at the time. And she would have had to have somebody really guiding her career who she would listen to and who knows if that ever would have happened. Certainly Sam Brody was not that person. I got the impression that he didn't. Simber, I imagine, could have done something if she'd listened. But Brody, I felt like he was maybe leading her to the end anyway. I don't know if that's a little too dramatic. or. I wanted to like him and I couldn't because he's always been painted as the, the worst villain in her life. And I thought, well, that can't be true. Some people are three-dimensional. Nobody is completely evil. So I tried to look for the good in him. And the good in him is that he genuinely really loved her and did try to get her work and followed her around like a little puppy dog. But on the other hand, he was abusive to her and to her daughter. He was abusive to his ex-wife and children. He, if he tried to get her good work, he was failing miserably at that. So Sam Brody was not the person she should have been with, certainly. Maybe too much of an enabler in a way. Oh, very much so. So I'm so curious about your next book. Are you able to talk about it at all, Lupe Velez? Well, I'm into the writing now. I'm just about through with the research. I've seen all of her films that are available that still exist and uh, was even able to get a copy of her last film, Nana, which was made in Mexico and probably her best dramatic performance ever. It's, it's wonderful. Her suicide was a lot more complicated than people think. People say that, well, she killed herself because she was pregnant and unmarried. And there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, She was having serious career troubles. Uh, A big Mexican film contract had just been canceled. Hollywood didn't want her. She had a contract for vaudeville in 1944. I didn't know that they still had vaudeville in 1944. They really didn't. So that was, she was having very bad career troubles and everyone was turning their backs on her. Her sister one of her sisters who she said oh I'm her favorite sister and she loves me she told the newspapers that she agreed to take care of Lupe Velez's baby if Lupe bought her and her husband a house oh so she was basically blackmailing her and the guy who got her pregnant 
really reluctantly agreed to marry her, but didn't want to. And that was painfully obvious to her. So she had a lot of problems going on. It wasn't just the pregnancy. But she was so talented. She could have had Garbo's career if she'd have had a major studio backing her, which she did not. She was brilliantly talented at drama and comedy. She was an incredible singer. I mean, really talented singer. And it's very frustrating that being a freelancer for most of her career, she was put into these amusing but low-budget, silly B-comedies. And such a huge talent was just wasted in these. I mean, yes, she was lucky to be working at all. So many people just don't get the opportunity to work, especially when they have an accent. But that was a real wasted talent because she would she could have been up there with Garbo and Dietrich. I'll admit I I didn't get how good she was until I finally watched one of the Spitfire movies. And her comedy translates across time. She's just a hilarious person. An excellent dramatic actress, too. I think I've only seen her in Congo. She, she didn't have that much to do in Congo. It was, it was um, a small role. That's all I've had a taste of. I, yeah, there, I, there, she, she did um, early in her career. She started out as a dramatic actress. Uh, up until 1932, she was known mostly as a dramatic actress. And then they found out what a good comedian she was. And after 1935, the only drama she did was her very last film. Oh, I didn't know she started with drama. She's just so good at comedy. I think it's so hard to be good at comedy that once somebody finds that you can do it, they want you to keep at it. And it makes money. The B films, the Mexican Spitfire films cost nothing to make and they brought in money. I mean, just the one I saw, I, I get it. But now that and I- there was one vignette I found that I just adore. She was working at RKO the same time that um, uh, Orson Welles was making Citizen Kane. And she used to- ride around the RKO lot on a tricycle with a little basket on the back with her chihuahuas in it. Another woman with chihuahuas I'm writing about. And she would ride through the Citizen Kane shooting stage in the middle of a scene with her chihuahuas and yell, beep, beep, and ride through. Oh. And Wells, she <laughs> loved puncturing pompousness. And there was nobody as pompous as Orson Welles. And I just wish there was an outtake because frankly, Citizen Kane is not one of my favorite films, and I think it could have been hugely improved with the addition of Lupe Velez riding through on a bicycle with chihuahuas yelling beep beep. I mean, what couldn't, right? Exactly. Just about any, you pick any film, Gone with the Wind, just about any film could be improved with the addition of Lupe Velez yelling beep beep on a tricycle. Somebody needs to do this and put it up on YouTube. I would like to see that. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been just wonderful. Before I let you go, though, I want to tell you, thank you so much for these books over the years. I mean, oh, thank you. I, well, I do them because I love doing it. I can't not write. And I don't claim to be that good at it. But the thing is, I don't make much money at them because they're so expensive to research. Mm-hmm. Photographs books, movies, um, things I have to buy that it's really more of an expensive hobby than a career for me. <laughs> well, it's it's meant a lot to me because 
before I could connect with anybody online, before there was TCM, I was, you know, the person who was interested in classic films. You know, I I didn't have a classic <laughs> film friend yet. So in a way, you have been my classic film friend all these years. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. And and it, and it just means so much to me. And it means so much to me to talk to you and be able to, to thank you for that. Uh, as Lena Lamont said, if I can bring a little joy and cheer into your dreary and humdrum life, and my life ain't been in vain for nothing. Ain't that the truth? Thank <laughs> you so much, Eve. And, Thank you uh, very much. All right. Take care. You too. You can learn more about Eve Golden at our website, evegolden.com. For show notes, reviews, videos, and more, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. Thank you for listening. This is Kendall Kruver, watching movies. Until next time.